0: Hello and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we talk justice over a coffee with a special guest. And on this episode, I got the chance to talk with Nisha Anand, CEO of the US NGO Dream Corps, founded by the CNN commentator, lawyer and activist Van Jones. Nisha is a smart Articulate and passionate communicator who shares her story with me from punk rock teenage activist to the bridge builder who helped unite both the Democrat and Republican parties in an historic piece of criminal justice reform known as the First Step Act. Amazing guest and an absolute joy to talk with her a few days. Nisha, welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on, how are you today?
1: I'm pretty good, thank you for having me on.
0: It's really exciting to have you. I was researching you, your life, uh, (laughs) Nisha Anand Incorporated before this chat and I must have listened to six or seven of your interviews just this morning alone I was doing some decorating work and I was just bathing in all things Nisha as I did it but I was uh, I've grown in my knowledge and enthusiasm and awareness of everything that you are doing and you've done with your life so I'm so I'm like a kid in a sweet shot okay which bits shall I try and uh, re-invoke for our podcast well we could take this bit and we could take this bit but there's so much we could talk about so so thank you for coming on
1: well, I'm excited to talk. That's a lot more um, podcast listening of me than most people in my own life will do. I think even my kids haven't listened to one. <laughs>
0: uh, now, I'm drinking coffee. You, I, I can see, and now this is a podcast, so no one else can, but as you took a swig there, you were drinking from a mug that says Mrs. Leonardo DiCaprio, is that right?
1: <laughs> I sure am. This is a great story, actually. My daughter, she's 14, and uh, I think that means she was 12 when the pandemic started. And she's a very active kid, super social. And as months and months went on, she started to slowly get more depressed. She would watch a lot of TV. She'd stick in her room. It was really hard for teenagers. And one night it was just me and her were home. And I said, why don't we watch Titanic? Because I remember when I was her age, that was a big movie for me or, or uh, maybe I was older. I can't quite remember the timeline. And we put it on and she fell madly for Leonardo DiCaprio. And then we watched every single Leo movie in the pandemic. And I hadn't seen a lot of them. There are some really good ones. And so I even discovered some great movies too. And I mean, when I say we watched all of them, I'm pretty sure we watched every single thing he's been in more than once. And uh, and it got her through the pandemic. So one of her friends sent her this mug, which she drinks out of proudly. Although today it's mine.
0: But today you are Mrs. DiCaprio. Yeah, no, he's a he's a good he's a good star to uh, to enjoy. Did you even see The Revenant with it with her? That's a bit of a violent film. Yes, for we old. saw
1: The Revenant, but <laughs> I have to say the one that I wish I hadn't seen with my children was Wolf of Wall Street.
0: Oh gosh, yeah, that was cringe. that was a
1: lot. They loved it. <laughs> they loved it but uh, when she went and re-watched it she made sure we weren't watching it with her it's a little embarrassing but she loved that one
0: <laughs> I forgot about that one yeah that's one of the ones you don't want to be watching with your mum in the room no <laughs> so we always open up these podcasts the same way you're a different part of the world to me so drinking coffee at this time of day is Probably sensible. It's getting on towards quarter past four and I'm having a coffee. I've saved, I've been waiting all day to have this coffee with you. So I'm probably gonna be up all night waiting for the caffeine yes. to die off. But does coffee feature in your in your day-to-day life?
1: Absolutely. So my husband is the coffee maker, and the reason why is he's gotten so down the coffee culture that I don't even know how to make it anymore at our house. He weighs it, he, you know, he grinds it and he weighs it and he puts it in our Chemex and it has all sorts of different processes. The temperature has to be exactly right. He has a little pouring kettle. It has gotten so complicated. I don't even try to make it. And I I use that excuse at work too. So actually our our CFO, our our main accountant, financial officer, he'll come in and make me coffee in the office too because I just claim I, I don't even know how to make it. So it's a nice thing. People make me and bring me coffee all day
0: the the use of the word chemex there has immediately given you brownie points <laughs> coffee lovers amongst uh, amongst us are going to areas would have picked up like
1: nice yes yeah. and he has a hand poked filter that's made in portland oregon by hand that's like the silver filter that sits inside the chemex so yeah he's gone way way in there
0: That's Yeah, that's like a V60. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Well, he sounds like my kind of guy. (laughs) And I'm sure having having listened to so many of your interviews this morning, I know, Nishi, you're my kind of woman. What I would love to discuss with you. Well, there's so many things we could talk about. I'm going to have to be really careful about what what questions I ask. So so we get the best of this time together. But as I speak to you today, yes, you're you're a wife. You are a mother of two children, one of which you just referred to the Leo fan, the other one being a, a baseball playing teenage boy. But you're also the CEO of this amazing nonprofit in the U.S. called Dreamcore. So for those of our listeners never heard of Dreamcore, could you give us quite a high level description of who you guys are and the, the sort of work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, we're a national uh nonprofit or NGO or charity organization, I don't remember exactly how they say it around the world, um, that works on social justice issues, social justice, racial justice, economic justice. Our main focus areas are criminal justice reform, climate and tech inequity and diversity in the tech sector. And what's unique about the work that we do yes, we very much have a set of values and we have a very much a worldview, the kind of world we're trying to create in the future we want to create. But our non-negotiable, the thing that I think makes us really special is that we refuse to play into division. Any solution we offer can't further divide the country, can't further divide us as people. It has to bring people together. And so one of the things that we have to do when we do that is have the biggest table possible. So we have the most brains at the table thinking through these ideas to come up with the solutions that we come up. So we use words like common ground. Um, we do work on legislation that's bipartisan in nature, our two-party system. We have to work on things across the aisle. Uh, we talk about building bridges and you know listening to each other. That's all a part of the work we do. So there's a heart element, which is we need to find each other and heal each other. But there's also this strong strength element to it. It's like, we're going to pass major legislation. We're going to have a huge impact. We're going to get as big as we can so that we can change the world for everybody. So I like to think of us as kind of this hard and soft beast. You've got the dream and you have the core. I think that really talks about us. um, yeah, that's dream corps. <laughs> nice
0: nice nice description and when you say we have the core the spelling of dream core like c-o-r-p-s like marine Corps, uh, yes. rather than the core of an apple right now you, you, you said um your values one of the values on your your website is servant hearted or servant leadership i love yes i love that and you being the leader of this organization i just wonder how that works out in your style of leadership, what servant being a servant-hearted leader is to you.
1: Absolutely. Our core values at the organization are, I know a lot of places, a lot of companies especially, have these values and they don't mean anything. But we have three. It took us a year to come up with just three. And it's servant leadership, solutions, and soul. And I already talked to you a little bit about solutions. Servant leadership, to me, means always keeping in mind the people that we are working for the causes that are most important that front and center. It's never about me. It's never, it's not even necessarily about winning. Although of course I like to win, but it's about who am I trying to help? What impact do I want to have in the world and making sure that I'm always to service of that. Um, That's easy in the big mission to think about it, but as it is as an organization, it means I'm really connected to the people on our staff. I can't see it any other way. And we talk about it as servant leadership, which has a long history and kind of uh, in U.S. history and in the world, just being a servant leader. But I started to think of it lately as feminist leadership as well. Mm. There were folks trying to tell us, tell me and my CEO, uh, her name is Summer. We have been together at this organization for eight years and we share an office even we don't want to separate, we do everything together. And folks were saying, as you grow and you get bigger, that's not how it's done. You have to have a very rigid hierarchy. You guys have to differentiate yourselves. In fact, you need to disagree sometimes and that's okay. And as I thought about that and I was like, okay, we're getting to this professional size and we're getting bigger and maybe that is what we have to do. I realized that that's not true. That's not our strength. What's really strong about us is that we do collaborate. We listen to each other and we show people that we are united. And in fact, the entire staff, I think that you'll see that across our staff. And when we're out in the world, that feeling of we're together, it's top, it's throughout the organization. So I think servant leadership, yes, it's a way about our mission in the world and who we're trying to serve, but it's also about how we be, just how we act every day with each other.
0: So you're the one that takes out the trash, you're the one there cleaning up at the end of the day, leading. You'll have to see,
1: you. I was moving furniture around all last week. We had a great donation uh, from a friend, and yes, I am the one that's like, I will get down and dirty, absolutely, and and everyone will.
0: <laughs> I yeah. love it. Well, on the subject of donations, I wanted to. Do, I thought I'd interject at this point. So, for some people that aren't familiar with Dreamcore, I go, "Well, that sounds lovely." I wonder who bryn has got on this episode. Uh, Jeff Bezos gave you guys a hundred million dollars recently. Yes. But to
1: correct, he gave Van Jones $100 million. This is something that's hard to correct. Van Jones is the founder of our organization. He is my mentor. Um, He ran the organization for a long time, and I'm lucky to call him a dear friend. And I worked with him as a fundraiser, actually, at the beginning of my career at Dreamcore. And so I know how hard it was to raise money. Um, I mean, I was a fundraiser for any organization, but then you have somebody like Van Jones who for international listeners, uh, he's on CNN. So if you watch CNN, you probably know who he is. But if you don't watch CNN, um, he's had a career like mine. He was like an activist in the street. That's how I got to know him. And then one day I went off to have kids and, and kind of got out of the you know, activist thing. And I see Van Jones has a job in the Obama White House. After that, I see him on CNN as a, as a host. And so his trajectory fascinated me. Um, How did someone like me that was just, you know, loud and, and protesting on the street, end up with this life of consequence, and then I was lucky to work for him. And fundraising for him, I was surprised. Like, why won't people just throw money at this guy? He's got the best ideas. He's a huge visionary. He's always been ahead of where the country is. He recognizes patterns well. He's phenomenal in predicting what is gonna happen in the world and what the world needs. And so when he was awarded this $100 million, my reaction was, it's about time. It's about time somebody invests that much in his vision. And so this gift from Bezos to Van was for Van to use however he wants. And so we were lucky to get some of that money. Um, But Bezos also, he started the um, Bezos Earth Fund, which gave a lot of money out, not just in the US, but internationally. And so before the $100 million gift, we were lucky to get also a Bezos Earth Fund gift directly to DreamCore which was pretty significant, um, as well. So yeah, uh, something's working and I got to tell you, I had been screaming about common ground and bridge building to funders forever as had van and nobody wanted to hear it. And I love that the award was the courage and civility award. Cause that's a lot of what I think dream core does. We have the courage to do things that might not be popular. Um, We have the courage to really fight hard and fight big and do things that have never been done before, but the civility piece of it, that we're not going to hurt people in the process. We're not going to point fingers and call names. We're really going to figure out a way to do it. So that it's durable, it lasts a long time and it includes everybody. So it feels really fitting that Mm. that award went to Van and we are incredibly thankful (laughs) um, that we're getting gifts from Van as well and helping him figure out, yeah, what to do with it
0: such a sizable gift <laughs> it is a sizable gift is not it yeah I, I i don't mind taking a bit of that if, if he's still struggling to <laughs> put it out there across the world i um i find it really interesting that 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 donation that gift as you describe it came from jeff bezos as well i think the whole theme of what i get from looking at you Dreamcore van jones is this uh the it, it sort of questions these conflicting categories of left and right the expectations of the rep- republicans and the democrats and how to build bridges how to find peace how to find unity of vision and all the complexity which we'll get into but i i find it really interesting when i stumbled across this this fact that uh, jeff bezos has made this significant investment and the 10 million dollars he gave to uh, your green the green part of that uh, those uh, third of the dream Corps. You think, well, he's such a bad guy in so many people's <laughs> eyes, right? He he is, because of his enormous wealth, uh, uh, for many people, and, and extraordinary success and growth at Amazon, for many people, Bezos has become a bad guy, you know, <laughs> which is curious. And, but not without, you know, it's not without rationale. I can understand for some reason why people might, find him a, a difficult character when he's flying people into space and the rest of the world's on their knees for a pleasure cruise, you know. But what often doesn't get a great deal of oxygen in the press is the, the type of donation that he makes to organisations like yourself that are doing this amazing work. And obviously you've had the opportunity to meet meet this remarkable guy, unquestionably remarkable man. So so I love that. Like Straight away off the bat, there's this conflict. And I know that you come from a leftist, progressive stance, and perhaps uh, it, it, the niche of old would have kind of had an opinion on the character, the kind of character of Jeff Bezos, but to then suddenly, oh, well, now I'm challenged because he's just yeah. donated this life-changing figure to our work. Isn't that, isn't that part of the, the, your story, actually, this, this constant situations of challenge? It
1: is. I mean, are any of us all good and all bad? We want to categorize and put people into these boxes you evil, you good, you're with me, you're not with me. And we all know that's not true. We live nuanced lives. We are all nuanced people. We're combinations of so many things that make us all. I mean, you're going to find out, I'm sure, throughout this podcast. I'm an optimist and I just love people in general. Like, that's just my way of being. But honestly, humans are remarkable. Every single one of us are like, who we end up becoming because of all of our experiences that fascinates me and we're nuanced and we get that. And I think that even in myself, I have all these different identities on a daily basis. I try to figure out what to do with. I grew up um, in Atlanta, Georgia in the South and my parents were immigrants. And back then I was born in the seventies. So, so grew up in the eighties in Atlanta, it was very much a black and white town and I was somewhere in the middle I was always a misfit. I didn't fit in. And there are a few things you can do with that when you don't fit in, you can always be an outsider and, uh, people will always make you an outsider. You don't have to do that yourself. It just happens. Um, but there's also a superpower that comes with that is the ability to fit in into a lot of different places, the ability to translate between all different worlds. I had to literally, literally translate for my parents for sure, but also there's a figurative translation and bridging these cultures. And I feel like I do that in in myself too. I was um, a punk rock kid, very rebellious, super activist, but I was also captain of the debate team. I got straight A's. I was gonna make sure I impressed any of my parents' friends who wanted to know I was doing well. We all have these things in us. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice to try to ignore the good in anybody. And one of the biggest pieces of legislation, perhaps perhaps it's gonna be the career highlight of my entire life, I hope there's a lot more, but so far was passing this one piece of legislation called the First Step Act in our Congress. And this was a piece of legislation that was significant, like the most significant piece of criminal justice reform in our federal government. Here our prisons are, they're both federal prisons and then state prisons. Um, So to make a law on a federal level, we had to pass it. And here, the final law has to be signed by the president. And that was President Trump. And so on a very real level, you have a question, can I work with somebody who I know on 99 out of 100 issues, we do not get along on 99 out of 100 values, we don't match. But if there is one tiny one, where we can find some common ground, or we can work together for this one thing? Should I not do it because of all the other distasteful stuff? You brought up servant leadership earlier, and the answer is no. If you're a servant leader, those people inside prison needed me to work with him on that one thing. Our whole staff had to ask themselves that question. We knew that was the fight ahead of us. And so even in an extreme, when you look at somebody like Trump, there is something that can be done. There's some path forward. And now 20,000 people are home from prison because of that one law, 20,000 people. And I promise you not a single one of them is asking, well, why did you, you know, have Trump work with Trump to get that done? You know, they're happy to be home. And, um, and they've continued the fight and the leaders who've been inside who led that, no, it does not matter who's in the White House. It does not matter who is in Congress you have to really keep that mission first. And I extend that with, I believe everybody has a role in making the world a better place. And I think um, Bezos is phenomenal at thinking, well, what is a role I have? He knows he has money. And to donate that much money to great causes, that is a role that he plays and one that is really welcome in the ecosystem of, of social change.
0: Well, I want, to, I want to come back to the First effect Act and unpack that because it really is an incredibly significant piece of legislation that you've worked to achieve. And I want people to understand exactly what that means, but let's go back to that, that young rebellious, uh, <laughs> s- slightly sanctimonious teenage oh, yes. rebel that you, you, you described. Can we do that? Can we go back to, to this?
1: Let's go for it.
0: No, did you it, <laughs> did you say it was Atlanta, Georgia where you grew up? Is that right? Yes. And you became, you were the punk rock uh, antagonistic activist. So so tell me about that. What do you think But you mentioned being a misfit. Is that, do you think that was one of the reasons you, this characteristic came to play or was it something that's been there from day one, whatever culture you grew up
1: in? I, you know, I wonder this because I've seen it in my own kids. There's some people who always root for the underdog and some people who always want to root for the team. That's like the hot, best, exciting team. I'm one of the underdog people. And I'm also one of those folks that just like, I hated anything that was unfair, Hmm. anything that seemed, because I was, you know, I certainly felt the impact when people treated me differently. So any other places where I saw it, where I could take it and depersonalize it and point out, well, that's unfair. That doesn't make sense. Um, I loved that too. So I think my parents would say from a young age, I was gonna turn out this way. And yeah, I, I I guess I felt like if I was gonna break the mold from the perfect Indian daughter, which would have been just to marry well and make sure that you know I did everything right. I looked good, I had good grades and I found a good husband. If I was gonna break the mold, I really needed to break it as extreme as I could. And, um, my parents were wonderful and, uh, sure. They didn't like it a lot of the time, but that was part of the American dream. Part of why they came here was that ability for me to find my own way and not have mm-hmm. to do exactly as was told in India. And, and so I broke them all pretty hard. I broke them in, um, You know, in college, I think I was arrested over a dozen times for protesting things. It was not at all on the uh, on my dad's probably dream list for his child. But yeah.
0: And what was is there any one particular memory you have that you think, oh, that's probably my clearest first memory of fighting what you saw at that point of your life as a gross injustice?
1: I remember the first time I organized other people, which was a pretty impactful moment. I can't remember the first injustice that, uh, that I pointed out. I should actually think about that a lot. I'm going to think about that, so I have a new story. But I do remember the first time I organized, which was in high school. I went to a private Catholic high school, and we had uniforms and I was a young feminist and I decided I was going to stop shaving my legs because that was some patriarchal crap that I wasn't going to do. And so I stopped shaving my legs and, you know, realizing that some people didn't like it. I also would start wearing the boy's uniform because it didn't say in our handbook, the boys wear pants, the girls wear skirt. It just said, this is the uniform and it listed it. And so I also decided sometimes I'd wear the boy's uniform. Sometimes I wear the girl's uniform with hairy legs and sometimes I'd wear the other one. I got called into the disciplinarian's office at one point, And she told me that I needed to shave my legs, that some people had been complaining. Uh, this will be funny to you. She said, this isn't Europe. We don't do this here. <laughs> and, uh, and I defiantly said, no, I actually, I gave her some, I was like, I told you, captain of the debate team. So I remember saying things like, you can take your patriarchal assumptions of what a woman should be and stick them somewhere else. You know, I had a long lecture for her. And then the next day, Of course I didn't shave my legs, but I also then organized other girls in my high school to stop shaving their legs too. And then what, what was she going to do then? And that was pretty powerful. It was a very small, I mean, your school is this very small version of the city you're in of the country you're in it's. And if you can do it and this, I tell young people too, like what injustice do you see at your own school, your own college, Mm -hmm. you can make a difference there. You can actually make an impact. Um, the difference I made there was after I left, they changed the handbook that said what girls have. Like they made it a little more explicit. Unfortunately, I'm I'm, I'm sure they've changed now, but you know, I had an impact.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that uh, it started. Then I was listening to a podcast with Michael Moore, the the documentarian, the know mm-hmm. uh, left leaning documentary, and he, his story is is very similar. You know, he, he started his. Political rebellion in his teens at school in the environment in which he was in, you know, it started yeah. there. What if I challenge this? It was, mm-hmm. it was right there at the outset. It's very inspiring to see somebody so realised in their views, so strong, and then he's ready to accept the consequences in order to to stand up against that injustice. So how do you reconcile this this punk rock activist uh, to this CEO, peace loving, bridge building? diplomat that i'm speaking to now is there any particular link that took you from this part of your life to where you are now
1: so like i mentioned i was an activist and really any cause in college uh, that really spoke to my values i would get involved with so the other group on our campus that was really loud and really active was the Free Burma Coalition. And I would just go to meetings and I hung out with some of the people who were really active there. And at one point, uh, the head of the organization, Jeremy, he said, we're gonna all go to Thailand and learn about uh, the folks who are refugees and at the border and you know, we'll learn all about it, we'll be better activists, great. So we all go over to Thailand and we are traveling around, we're meeting refugees. And we met this one woman, her name is Debbie Stothard. She runs an organization that works on human rights. And so she says, we're putting together a group of activists from around the world to go in and do a protest. And of course me at this point in my life, I'm like, sign me up with asking very little questions. Um, But she signed us up and 18 of us from six different countries went into Myanmar on the 10-year anniversary of the 8888 massacre. They call it 8888, August 8th, 1988, when there was a large student uprising, a pro-democracy uprising, fighting against the military junta, and about 10,000 people were murdered. Other students from the city or other activists that were pro-democracy activists fled, leading to a large refugee crisis, and... um, Some of them took up arms on the border and some of the other regions of the country and a lot fled. And we were marking the 10 year anniversary. We went in 18 of us and we had these little leaflets that said, we are your friends from around the world. We support your, your hopes for human rights and democracy. That was it. That's all these little red cards said. And we knew it's highly legal in a military dictatorship to bring in We snuck these leaflets in, we tied them like under our shoes and our soles. They were in like our bathroom bags. We had all sorts of clever ways to sneak these cards into the country. Just that alone, you know, was a massive crime. And then we handed them out. It was a well-coordinated action. We had flights back to Thailand that all of us were supposed to get on and none of us made it. All 18 of us were arrested in our different parts of the city. And we didn't know for a week, we had no idea who, if all of us had gotten arrested, we weren't able to talk to any outside people. We really were kept in isolation. I was with my group of three. I remember running into someone else when I was brought to the bathroom in prison and realized, oh, another group had been arrested. It was quite terrifying. But during my week there, I knew that a military dictatorship operates on fear. So I tried to be really strong during that time. I look back on it now and think, what was I thinking? How was I not completely terrified? But somehow you'll have to believe me that 21 year old me was not terrified at that moment. And I um, a week into it, we were shipped off one morning to a sham trial, which was conducted all in Burmese. It lasted all day long. That's when we saw everybody, all 18 of us. And we were all sentenced to five years in prison hard labor, that's what they said. And the next day we were deported. So just to let you know, I won't let you, I won't take you through all the emotions of that because that was a lot too, but we were arrested or we were deported the next day. And what I found out when we arrived in Thailand is there was a Congress person there from the United States, Representative Chris Smith. He still serves in Congress and he's a Republican. And Chris Smith from New Jersey flew all the way to Thailand to help secure our release. And he was at that point head of the Human Rights Commission. And I had, obviously I was deeply grateful when we were deported, pretty much anyone I saw, I was gonna like hug and kiss and thank for absolutely anything. But I was, I was young, I was very righteous. And I thought I have this like 20 hour plane ride with this representative, this US Congress person who's a Republican. So I'm gonna to talk to him about every single issue that I wanna to talk to him about. We're gonna hit all of the hot topics. I'm gonna to just like grill him till he changes his mind on my issues. That's what I thought. And I thought it was my duty and my responsibility to do that. Absolutely. As an activist, I felt like I had to do that, but we started the conversation sitting next to him and he immediately started talking about human rights abuses in other parts of the world and wondered what I thought of that. And we started this long conversation all about things we had in common, views that we actually agreed on. And in that moment, I realized I didn't actually bring up anything we disagreed on. I found it was much stronger in that moment to really discover. He knew things that I didn't know, even as much as I had studied him in college, obviously because of his position. And that really, really opened up my mind about how I thought about everybody. Like, was this really the enemy? He flew and got me free, helped get me free and he cares about all of these same things that I think about. And it really shifted my idea that that's not actually the enemy. The enemy is the injustice, the oppression, the inequality and inequities that we face. That's what I'm fighting against. It's not the people who have different ways of trying to solve these problems.
0: I love that. I absolutely love that story. I think it's amazing. And, uh, I think it, it, it boils down so often to getting to know people, doesn't it? Building a relationship. Absolutely. And we can have our, I think what you said earlier actually, we can always listen to the people we agree with, surround ourselves with the people we agree Easy. with. Easy. Yeah. And that's a comfortable life, but we don't tend to progress beyond that. And we can put up our barriers and defriend and de platform and ignore those we don't agree with. But actually, sitting down, breaking bread with people, having conversations, (laughs) developing some sort of relationship makes a heck of a difference. Doesn't always change people's political opinions, but it changes the way we think about them too, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we meet. You can't hate somebody that you know, if you can connect with their heart. And I especially think through pain, if you can have like common pain, you see that at times of great tragedy, we connect with each other. We're able to see across that difference You can't hate people. Mm. If you can't hate them, you can't oppress them. And so I do think that actually figuring out how to even just find one thing, listen and have that shared experience with with people does heal the world. I think that is the most important part. Mm. It's impossible to commit the atrocities that are committed on on a global scale uh, without the dehumanization. That's a big piece of it. And so conversations and, and just being curious about people uh, breaks that makes it impossible
0: uh, yeah I, I think that it's fascinating really but i think most people whatever which side they sit on, on a variety of issues are led by compassion in some way so it might be on one side they are compassionate for their fellow colleagues blue collar workers that are losing their jobs due to the exportation of work to overseas so they, they've developed a uh, an angry rhetoric perhaps towards the outsider based on losing employment opportunities in their community and all that. But it's there's a compassion there for the everyday man, their colleagues, their friends, their family that are out of work. It comes from compassion in the same way those that defend mm-hmm. those who are uh, the outsiders, the minorities amongst us, that the underprivileged. There's a compact. There's a more immediate. There's an obvious compassion there. But yeah. there are both of those sides would see it as being compassionate for somebody. And I, I suppose it's finding that that uh, that unifying element of of love. Uh, yeah, that he talks so beautifully on. Um, In
1: this one, like what you just pointed out, that is the perfect example of we need to listen to each other because we have blind spots. We do not want to admit. That the other side is right, but it's so obvious that the other side is right. Absolutely. You want to protect the folks here who are out of work and have had their communities completely decimated by globalization. Like There aren't jobs. And there's a lot of America where there aren't jobs. Those folks really do need our help. They need our compassion. We need to protect them and help them reskill, help rebuild communities. And All of the folks that are coming across the different borders, whether it's because of a humanitarian or environmental crisis or purely just immigration and opportunity, we also want them included. We want to make sure they have a chance at a great and amazing life. So if we all agree that a good, healthy life is important to all of them, we should be able to find a solution that solves the folks who want to protect the people already here and the folks who want to protect the people coming That doesn't seem like mutually exclusive items. It's just we're refusing to admit that either side has a point. Mm. They got a point. I'm positive we can come to the table and find something that works for everybody.
0: There was a moment uh, a few years ago, David Cameron was the prime minister and a really high number of people crossing the channel in dinghies it's still happening now it's not the feature of news at the moment but it's it certainly hasn't stopped the current conflict in the ukraine well not in the same in the same form of migration but but it's bringing that issue up again of refugees and asylum seeker migration of their distribution across the eu etc um, but the conservative party are trying to have quite a strong stance on it quite a protect, protectionist stance and then there was this photograph in Turkey of a little boy called Alan Kurdi, a three, four-year-old mm-hmm. boy that washed up on the beach of his body. And it, and it, it was, it, nobody could have seen that photograph and come out the next day and stood at the ballot box, right. stood up in Parliament and carried on the same argument about protecting our borders and the need to take you know, brutal control over who is and who isn't. It, that argument had gone. For that moment in time when that image was was captured and shared and distributed, because suddenly you would have been a monster not to have seen such a heartbreaking thing and, and, and have to, to reset your stance in, in some way. So I, I find that fascinating. Now, I want to get on to the first step act because this is big and i okay. and your your ted talk so anisha's done this amazing ted talk it's been seen downloaded viewed over a million and a half times 1.5 million times when i was was watching it so do go and, and and give that a look but it is around this this achievement you and your people uh, had a few years ago with the first step act under the the trump presidency and um, so yes. tell us then let's go into that there's obviously, I think most people are aware there are problems in the US with uh, the extremely <laughs> high incarceration rate, right? They yes. incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. I, I looked it up uh, recently, six times more per capita than than us here in, in the UK. And we don't have a low incarceration rate, but the US per person, per capita, it, it, they, they they lock up six times more than we do and Australia and Canada and other countries as well. So it's, it's vast, if, if a great book, um, just mercy brian stevenson yes. another put dive into that amazing amazing uh, information that you'll get from that as well as the the personal narrative as well so this is uh, the injustice that you are trying to to tackle how did that come about how did that become on the where did that feature in the agenda of dream court van jones why did that come to the fore and how did you get stuck into that
1: Yeah. Well, it's always been important for me. Like you said, it's such a big problem here. You cannot talk to anybody in America that hasn't been impacted by incarceration, whether it's themselves or their friend or their family. And it's applied in such a racist way in this country that for me, someone who always cares about injustice, it was an obvious one for me to get involved with. Um, So I had been involved with it for a long time. And it was an issue that Of course, I looked at organizations that wanted to work on that issue. And I had my first interview with Van. Um, You know, when my kids were little, I took some time off and I was just helping, you know, some movement groups do fundraising work. And I knew I wanted to play a bigger game. I didn't want to just do local politics, which is important. Everyone should do. I'm not saying don't do local politics. But for me, I knew I wanted to do something bigger. And I saw Van on the news and I saw him... um, You know, leading this bigger life. And so when a job came across my desk to work with him, I jumped at the chance. And in that interview, which was now 10 years ago, he told me what was up and and what he wanted to do in the next, you know, five years. And he told me, hey, we're going to work on bipartisan criminal justice reform. And I laughed because to me, I thought that was an oxymoron bipartisan and criminal justice reform. For me, in my head and how I grew up, it was always the Republicans who wanted to lock everybody up. It was the only tool they had. You smoke weed, go to jail. You murder someone, go to jail. You know, you break a window, go to jail. It was just like there was no other. Everything was incarceration. I thought there was no way that there was anyone on the right that would want to work on this issue. But he walked me through it in the interview and he said, you know, Nisha, you and I have always cared about it from a justice angle and, you know, from a racial justice angle. That's why we want to see it change. And we've, you know, been steadfast with that. But he said in the Republican coalition on the right, there's actually a lot of alignment. They want to do something now too. You have fiscal conservatives who don't want any more taxpayer dollars going to the prison system. They think it spends a way too much money and there's no good results. So you have the fiscal conservatives don't like it. The libertarians think it's a huge overreach in the police state, incarceration, they don't like all the drug laws anyway. So they also think the system needs to change. And he said, you also have the religious right who cares about second chances. They've been anti-death penalty. Our country still has the death penalty, but you have the religious right who are anti-death penalty, believe in second chances, wanna see redemption. That's not non-existent in the US prison system. He said, so although they're coming at it for different reasons, very different reasons than us. They do want to see it change. And he said, I think I can bring that table together. I think I can bring folks together and we can do it. And so we started under the Obama administration and we worked with Newt Gingrich, who was speaker of the house when I was in high school from my district. So he was actually a very powerful figure in starting the era of mass incarceration. And now he wanted to work with us to end it. Wow. That was a huge, 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 like moment of tension in my life, because this was like a guy I used to protest against. Um, but we worked with a very diverse coalition under Obama, got the legislation pretty far and got the community of people to work together pretty far. And then Trump became president. And so the political uh like the political operation was a little less favorable to us. We weren't sure what we could pass. Maybe there was a little more compromise, but we called it the first step act for a reason. We just needed to keep this coalition together and get some stuff done. So then we could do more stuff together. So we just, like I said, van turned to us and he said, the people inside do not care who's in the white house. They do not care about the optics. They want us to keep working. And we did. So we kept working. We kept building this coalition Mm. and Pretty much uh, the last 10 years in the U.S., it's been hard to pass anything this big in our Congress. Our Senate is split pretty much 50-50 Republicans and Democrats, so it's easy just to stop any agenda from going forward. And during the Trump administration, and because we did build this coalition of everyone working together and really listening to each other, we had 87 of the 100 senators in a split Congress vote to pass this act, and we had Trump pass the bill. And it's very common sense legislation that wasn't getting across because people were digging in their heels and their own values. Things like, hey, you probably shouldn't, not probably shouldn't, it became illegal to shackle women during childbirth. That wasn't illegal before. Um, we introduced good time credits. We increased also the classes, things that everyone could agree on. You could have more education, you could have good time credits and time off. We changed some of the actual laws and sentencing in our country. Crack and cocaine were sentenced at such a different rate for the same drug that you had people serving lifetime in there for the same offense that folks were spending, you know, three to five years in. So bringing that disparity down, these were common sense things that everyone from every party could agree on. And we've seen now, since this has been past three years, 20,000 people come home from this piece of legislation. But it took a willingness for us to work together to get that done. And it was formerly incarcerated leaders with, you know, big name Republican leaders um, coming together. You know, you had Trump and you had Van Jones in the same room getting this done. And um, it's really inspired uh, me to keep moving and thinking about how we can get that done in bigger issues like climate. And I think it's inspired a, a whole bunch of activists and our staff to say, all right, let's play this game in this big way. So that's the first step act. I hope I described it well for an international audience. I tried not to use too much like dysfunction of our political system.
0: <laughs> no, you did. You, you described it very well. And and criminal justice reform, if we were to take that one subject alone, I'm sure we could discuss it for hours and, and hours and it just makes me wonder what's going on in my own country, rather selfishly, really. But it's it's a it's a subject probably all over the world that, that yes. needs a, a great deal of attention. There's terrible injustices that take place within the criminal justice system and the prison system in most countries, and some perhaps would suspect that the UK, the US, being the more developed nations of the world, we would we'd be you'd like to hope we'd lead the way, but sadly I, I can't believe we can make that make that claim. What's next? After having, I mean, you're imbued with the confidence of achieving this, this home run to use the right. US phrase. I've gone into a super Englishman on this podcast. Yes, sure home run. <laughs> I don't know why that is. So home run is, we use that phrase too, um, or wow. a six in cricket. Um, right, we don't so, use so, uh... <laughs> that.
1: It's just my Indian-ness, I know what you mean.
0: Ah, yes, of course. Well, what, what, I mean, that's giving you the confidence to think, right, what's the appetite for next do we stay and plumb out these issues of, of in desperate need of criminal justice reform and prison reform or do we right that's the next one you say mention climate or, or climate absolutely
1: i mean what's lucky at dream Corps is we have a team that's working on all of them okay. so right now we have a bill in front of congress called the equal act that will completely finally get rid of the crack cocaine disparity Huge bipartisan support, we need to get that done. There's also the First Step Implementation Act. Now all these people are coming home, we need to do a much better job at, we have, a, I don't know, I doubt this is similar in other countries, I, you know, I really don't know, but we have like a box on applications for jobs that say, have you been convicted of a felony? And then you just get put in the no application pile. So we have a lot of work to do when people come home, how to make it, um, how to help people succeed. So there's a lot more to do on criminal justice reform, but climate is in dire need uh, of our attention and our attention, Dream Corps attention, but the whole world attention. And so we've been building a common ground committee on climate all around our country to try to really hear what are the issues where there is agreement. We somehow think that, oh, all Republicans are against doing anything to help the climate. That's not true. We have farmers who absolutely understand climate change. Anyone in our in the military who works overseas understands the impact of climate change. We actually have a lot of people who are on the right who want to do something. Maybe not all the things I want to see done, but enough things that we could start instead of just digging in our heels and getting nothing done. We can't wait, like it is severe. So that of course is important. So my team has been building, you know, a coalition of people from all sides to work on climate and a set of a set of issues that there is a lot of agreement on to start working on. So, yeah, climate is very important, too.
0: Do you think that the economic argument is possibly the, the most powerful? Is that you think as an idealist or as a, an impassioned justice seeker, if you were to lead with that and and pointing out the, the injustice of a situation, uh, you know, it doesn't bear a great deal of fruit. But when you flip it and say, well, actually, if you look at the economics, this is is this a massive loss leader. Oh, suddenly it's got traction. Do you find that that economic argument tends for to be some a leader? People,
1: yeah, for some people, absolutely. You know, like I was explaining on the criminal justice, you know, we're all nuanced and different. We have different motivations and reasons for all sorts of things. So finding what it is for the constituency you're talking to is so important. Um, so yeah, absolutely, the economic argument wins. But for an oil company, it's you know the economic argument is going to be the opposite, right? They're not going to see the you know. So it does depend who you're talking to, for sure. Yeah,
0: that's true. That's true. I remember watching a documentary about a, a community in Texas that had switched to solar for no other reason than that it was more efficient. It uh, it, it was it, it wasn't that they had suddenly changed their politics and uh, but it was it was just they'd done the math and it had become it's true. more
1: efficient. There was efficient. this group here called the green tea party. We had, we had a tea party team, uh, start up in the early days of, of the Obama administration and the green tea party. They were just homesteaders who wanted to not be dependent on anything. Uh, folks who really just wanted to live off the land, not be dependent on the government for absolutely anything, energy, etc. And so there was this huge alignment of people that wanted to work on things like solar because it meant they didn't have to be dependent on the government. You know, there mm-hmm. is reasons, um, If you look for them, if you're willing to listen and be curious, you will find the common ground.
0: I certainly dream of the idea. I have this regular dream. Sometimes before I go to bed, I go on Pinterest and look at pictures of log cabins and tiny homes, Yeah, tiny homes, like living a like self-sustaining lifestyle. And, oh, it's uh, totally I would love to do that. I'd love to go off grid and and live that out one our of our next things, lifetime
1: our next lifetime we'll we'll live or know, maybe completely. your
0: yeah maybe your children's uh lifetime you know i was watching sure. another program i watched on tv recently <laughs> a program recently and, and his teenage children they were building their own mini house ha- homes oh, on wow. I was like, oh wow how amazing is that one of the things this this example reminds me of i've also been reading so i don't just watch television nisha i do read the occasional book and i'm reading about them. me too
1: <laughs> but mostly tv right now
0: <laughs> well actually i go for audio books because sitting down and page turning really hard for me but i will drive or whatever audio books yeah. i consume pretty readily i'm going through uh, the autobiography the bi- biography of uh, william wilberforce one of them anyway at the moment and what was so interesting about when he passed the legislation of 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 uh, the abolitionist work he was doing to outlaw the, the slave trade back in the 1800s he had exactly the same issue that he was started off from a moral point of view about the immorality of slavery yeah and it Does was not like, work this, this is going nowhere so he had to go at different angles he talked about the by putting slaves on certain colonies there was a higher chance that they would riot there would be insurrection they would lose control of those colonies so we should really ought to stop Sending slaves there, and then he had to make the opposite argument. Well, actually, if we ban slavery, then our then our enemies have colonies. They will be less profitable because they'll have less labor. All of that had nothing to do with justice. These arguments, but yeah. for, for some politicians, they they were had they had traction. They got the vote, and the bill was was passed. So the, it's the same game two hundred years later.
1: Yeah, I mean, I told you I was a, a debate nerd. I had to argue every side of an issue, but we don't have to come to it for the same reasons. We really don't. We can come to it for our own reasons and still get stuff done. It is a losing strategy to feel like you have to convince someone of your own morals that mm-hmm. all that never works. If I sit across from someone and tell them, oh, you're racist and you totally suck. Join me in my you know movement. They're not going to do it. <laughs> that doesn't work. So instead speak to, you know, find out what makes them tick. And I come to the table, not wanting anyone to change me and who I am, you can count on me that in any conversation I have, especially in these mixed rooms with Republicans and Democrats and right and left, I will have my progressive values and I will always try to bring the equity lens to a solution we're talking about. How does your idea help the least of these? How does your idea make sure that those left out and left behind are not forgotten? But I have a blind spot, which is I never think of the individual and like your own personal, it's just not how I was wired. So I have to count on the people on the right, my partners to think about the individual liberty and maybe the individual rights and freedoms that I'm not thinking about. So I count on them to be the best of themselves so they can point out where my blind spot is. And I hope they can count on me to be the best of myself so I can point out their blind spots. That's how you come to the right solution. They're not always thinking of equity or the common good or the larger purpose. And I'm not always thinking of the individual rights and that need to have that self-determination. We can actually then be stronger together if we're willing to point point those out and help each other.
0: Do you have any examples that come to mind when you think of somebody um, giving you a little nudge and challenging you on something?
1: Um, I mean, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or are you always right? No, I'm definitely not always right. I, I can tell you, I don't know how much, I'm sure we don't have a lot of time, but I should tell you the first time I remember it quite clearly was when I was, um, I locked myself down at the center of a circus by the neck. I, we had these bike locks around our our neck and there were six of us that locked our necks together at the circus, which was um, because the animal abuse, the circus had animal acts, <laughs> right? And they, you know, I thought, well, then we'll stop the abuse for the night and we'll make a point and we will make a big news story and, and no more animal abuse at the circus. And we had been practicing for like weeks, how to run into the center of the circus, lock our necks down, get rid of the keys. And there we would do it. It's so really excited. We get there. We lock ourselves down. The keys are gone. And I, I look around and I see all of the people coming in to watch the circus, families, kids, um, all of these different people. And I panicked. And I, the only people that could hear me were the other people locked by the neck. And I was like, what have we done? This is really, really stupid. And they were all like, this is for the animals, you know, free the tigers. And, you know, they were all into it. And all I could think of is I've ruined these children's night. They might've saved up for the week. I don't know what the circumstance was, but they were all out to see the circus they don't know anything about animal abuse and now they can't and i remember panicking in that moment and thinking this was not the right thing to do and um what happened was a truck came they lifted us out all together locked by the neck put us on the back of the truck brought us to the back and then cut us out with like these crazy blades with flames flying everywhere it, we didn't end up ruining the kids' night but for those like 30 minutes while they were figuring out how to get us out of there I had a change of opinion I still got arrested even in Burma after that I certainly was still doing it but I thought a lot differently about what makes a good action when do you take that act of civil disobedience it's not always you know the first thing you do in fact there's an escalation of tactics and so for me I started thinking a little bit more strategically
0: love that I love the idea of you being carried out of a circus (laughs) locked to two other people by the neck and thinking like like a thought bubble coming out of your head (laughs) could we have done this differently exactly I just uh, I'm gonna I'm conscious of time escaping us I want to ask you two questions and then you're done you're free to get on with your your day the the first one actually is 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 I'm thinking you are a unique and wonderful individual, but there are also people I think they'll be listening to this and think oh, I can relate to Nishi. And there's a, I may, I might see certain characteristics of her in me too. For that person, growing up with, with this passion for for justice, and they feel a a tendency to 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 outwork that perhaps in debating, perhaps by protest, civil disobedience—the phrase you just used. What wisdom or advice might you have for for somebody at a younger stage of life that has those tendencies and characteristics some, from all the things that you've learned? What, what could you share with that listener?
1: One, I think do it, honestly. I think there's nothing better than learning. And we need, we absolutely need the folks that are really excited, really new and really passionate to jump in. We do need the folks out on the street. I would say getting active is more important than, uh, than doing it the right way at first. You just go in and you learn like anything else. And I think the other thing that I wish I had done was really found mentors early, earlier that I know it all. In general, I, I kind of act like that is a part of who I am. If you're a know-it-all, then the number one thing I can tell you is you don't know it all and find people with more experience. For me, what I try to talk to people now, because a lot of my friends came from the same active part of the left that I came from. And they look at me sometimes and and younger me might look at me and think I'm a sellout. But certainly some of my friends think, oh, she's a sellout working with the other side, working with, you know, getting money from Bezos, all of that. It's very much a part of the conversation. And what I try to do is say we're part of a big ecosystem and we all need each other. And I wish more people saw that. So I would like And I think the younger generation understands it a lot better than my generation is that we all have a role to play in making the world a better place, no matter where you come from, not just the ecosystem of the left, but I think the entire country, if you're in a corporation, if your company wants to make a change, I never thought I would see how many companies jumped on board with Black Lives Matter. That was huge. And the fact that they wanted to do something at that moment means that they could want to do more and more and more and that's encouraging so I think everyone has a place and to you know that like uncle you argue with you know at the table they have a place and change too even if they're not going to agree on where on your own politics can find something to work on together
0: I was going to ask that my final question was going to be what gives you hope for our future but I think you've kind of just just described that in in the previous question so let me just finalize by asking how can we find out more about what you're doing stay connected to you follow you and be encouraged by your work the work of Dreamcore. Where where can we go
1: well definitely i'm going to tell you my my personal website is nisha because Dreamcore is actually working on changing our name. Because if I told you our website, you would realize the problem that I always have to spell out corpse, C-O-R-P-S. So nishaan.org, and you should be able to find things from there. You can find me on Twitter, you can find the organization Dreamcore. And soon we'll be changing our name, which will make us much easier to find <laughs> in the future. So I would love to stay connected. We do want to build a home for change makers, people who want to change the world, but don't want to do it in the nasty, divisive way, which seems to be the loudest part right now. So if that's you, if you want to change, if you want to fight for social justice and you're sick of the division and want to find a new way to solve problems, then DreamCore is the place for you.
0: All right. Awesome. Nisha, you're awesome. That's been so good. <laughs> so good to talk to you, get to know you a little bit. Please stay in touch. I'd love to, to speak to you again at some point and uh, God bless. Have a good Good day. Keep doing the good work. We're we're supporting you. We're cheering you on. Thanks,
1: out. and you too. I'm cheering for you too. So
0: it is possible. It is possible to unite people of supposedly opposite political viewpoints over key subjects by choosing a multi-dimensional approach in order to discover those areas of common ground. Love it. Go and watch Nisha's TED Talk, "The Radical Act of Choosing Common Ground," and as she mentioned in closing, she has a website you can visit for further signposting at nishaandand.org. Do also go and check out the work of DreamCorp by going to their current website www.thedreamcorp.org. The DreamCorp spelled D-R-E-A-M-C-O-R-P-S. I would also recommend Van Jones' podcast, Uncommon Ground. This was something I have only recently come across in the lead up to this podcast, and I'm really enjoying. He has some amazing guests. And if you're not familiar with Van Jones, he has developed a unique reputation for, for his willingness to work across party lines and go to great lengths to fight for peaceful, respectful discord, contrary to common popular culture. It was a delight to feature the work of Nisha and Van and Dreamcore on this podcast. If you have any recommendations for guests you'd like us to invite on, then please get in touch. You can contact us at bluebearcoffee.com or find us on social media at Bluebear Coffee Co. Thank you for listening. Drink good coffee, stay safe, peace.